The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box with Karen Cho, Amanda Drury and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. The Dow logs its worst day since October and falls into negative territory for the year, while South Korea's KOSPI drops more than 3% as the spread of the coronavirus grips global markets and the death toll crosses 100. Airline travel and consumer stocks lead losses whilst oil falls for a sixth day and the 10-year Treasury yield drops to its lowest level in three months. Renault's board will reportedly meet today to name former SEAT chief executive Luca De Meo as its next CEO as the French automaker struggles to rebuild its relationship with Alliance partner Nissan. And UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson promises a Huawei solution as the National Security Council prepares to make a decision on the Chinese tech giant's part in Britain's 5G rollout. There's no reason why we shouldn't have technological progress here in the UK allow consumers, businesses uh, in the UK to have access to fantastic uh, technology, but also protect our security interests. So welcome to the show. We're going to actually start off with some corporate news. Um, the shares in SAP have had actually a rather good rally over the last 12 months, but they are now shy of their 127 uh, euros per share high of January uh, last year, um, trading around about 122. Um, we have numbers out from the group today, which of course no longer has a single CEO. Uh, and as you would have seen from uh, Karen's interview in Davos, they have two CEOs, uh, Jennifer Morgan and Christian Klein, co-CEOs. And just to show you the delineation of responsibility, the latter uh, very familiar with the traditional license-driven model. Uh, and of course, um, Miss Morgan, Jennifer Morgan, uh, oversaw the transition to cloud, as I'm sure you saw from Karen's interview as well. Well, now we have a fourth quarter uh, figures coming out from the group as well. Uh, new cloud bookings up 25%, up 31%, excluding infrastructure as a service uh, in fully 2019. Cloud revenues up 39%, total revenue up 12% as well. And um, that's encouraging because the group sales figure was up 10% in the third quarter uh, back in uh, early October. Gross margin also moving in the right direction, up five um, percentage points, it says here, uh, in full year 2019, but at a cost. And herein lies the problem. Uh, the profit, the operating profit down 21%. Uh, on an IFRS basis and on the same measure operating margin down 6.8% earnings per share down 18% um, on an IFRS basis as well. So concerns about the IFRS measurement uh, for both margin and indeed profitability. And this is the challenge that Ms. Morgan and Mr. Klein have to uh, have to negotiate. We were all talking a lot about converting numbers to the cloud, like trying to get that revenue business. Mm. But the conversation I was having with the new co-CEOs of SAP was about retaining customers, very laser focused on those customers because Larry Ellison, as I pointed out in this panel, if you saw it um, from Oracle, 
was effectively saying that he smelled blood in the water, that he was going after their customer base. There was an upgrade to uh, HANA, and effectively they were stopping the support of other software on the system, which meant you could use anything else, any of the competitors' software. But uh, they've made a change, and up until 2025, that means you can only use a lot of the pro products now from SAP. So Larry Ellison saying, we're going after your customer base. And mm -hmm. the CEOs, both of them, they deny that this is the case, that there's been any churn in the business effectively, and that they're still retaining numbers. So it's but quite a key moment when you talk about this the handover. CEO line? Of course, no, That's everything's right. fine, or we welcome competition. <laughs> you know? well, for their first outing, it's probably not the question they both wanted. But I think it sets the scene. Very strong handover from Bill McDermott, as he's being converted to the cloud and pushing companies along this digital transformation. Share price performance has been pretty strong over recent years. So, so what um, these companies CEOs again, to step up to? all about the profits, all about the margins, because um, cloud has offered a lot and whether it delivers remains to be seen. But I should add that they now expect adjusted operating profit to grow by between 8 and 13% in 2020. Uh, my understanding from the Reuters copy is that that is an upgrade. They've confirmed their long-term ambition of achieving 35 billion euros uh, in revenue in 2023. And I'm delighted to say we will speak to the co-CEO, Jennifer Morgan, 7.40 Central European time. But of course, the top story by a long way globally, uh, socially, economically, politically at the moment uh, is the spread of the coronavirus uh, infections and disease out of China. And Karen, you've got some updates for us. Yes, the death toll from the novel coronavirus has surpassed 100, while the number of confirmed cases continues to rise exponentially. China's National oh, Health Commission you. said all but six of the no, deaths no, no, have occurred no, in Wuhan, where the virus is believed to have emerged. However, on Monday, the virus claimed its first victim in the capital, Beijing. Much of central China's Hubei region remains in lockdown, while on Lunar New Year events have also been cancelled throughout the country. Meantime, when it comes to those travel warnings, the US and Canada have issued travel warnings to citizens planning to visit the region. This is the virus continues to spread abroad. Germany, Sri Lanka and Cambodia all recorded their first confirmed cases of the infectious disease on Monday. US President Donald Trump addressed concerns around the coronavirus, tweeting, the US is in very close communication with China and is ready to offer any help that is necessary. Well, let's take a look at the market reaction to these events that will be unfolding. Of course, a black swan type of scenario for many investors that were moving very aggressively into risk on assets on the back of that phase one trade deal. Better signs around Brexit as well. And what we had again in session, another reversal, if you take a look at the red ink that we're seeing on the boards, so 1.5% plus coming off major markets. The Dow at one point briefly turning negative in session for the year as it hit some of its lowest points at the uh, trading day at the start of the session, eventually closing down 450-odd points. Large-cap stocks, some of the underperformers are for the NASDAQ at those big tech names. And as we saw the bounce in recent weeks and times, it was semiconductors leading the charge. These are the stocks that are now undermining the trajectory for the NASDAQ. You're seeing some losses there. The under undercurrent, of course, energy. will drag on the markets as investors weigh up the global events and the impact on oil demand this year. Curiously, I was reading a report from in, uh, RBC saying it shouldn't be a global event for demand just yet. A Chinese event for fuel, yes, but not for the broader market. But you are still seeing it for some of these sectors. I want to take you to Treasuries. This has been an area where you've seen a concentration of risk. Investors still don't know exactly what they're dealing with. 
on the demand side, but you have seen a peelback on that 10-year yield and 1.61%. We've shed about 23 basis points in the last week or so, which is a more aggressive sell-off that you see in Treasury markets than SARS. That took a little bit longer to come to market, a little bit, little bit longer to respond to, more like three to four weeks previously where we saw about 40-odd basis points stripped off the trade. But the 23 basis points, a very short period of time, has been noted by a lot of investors, a very aggressive move. Some of this might be hedging now coming into the mix too. I want to take you back to that oil train. Take a look at uh, the performance. WTI hitting its lowest level since October in the session. It's fifth negative day of trade. The level 53, where we are hugging at this stage, that's a handle we're attached to. 59 for Brent. Also some appetite for gold, as you would expect. Uh, 15.79. We saw in the action yesterday a very strong performance for that a trade around bullion. Its highest level since the 8th of January for gold. Let me take you to EM markets. Investors have been also eyeing whether this EM trade should retreat at some point. And you can see this is how investors are dealing with it. I think uh, one of the other big trades has really been around the Australian dollar proxy for the Chinese markets, which have been, of course, uh, closed over the Lunar New Year holidays. And that, of course, has now been extended. So let's get out to Matt Taylor for more on the impact across those Asian markets. Matt, good morning. Well, we've got a lot of weakness across the markets today, Karen, really a risk off day, money flowing into uh, the safety of the Japanese yen, for instance, and out of equities, Tokyo markets are uh, just closing off by about half of 1%. But we did see some more damage elsewhere. Australia down by 1.3%, New Zealand down by about uh, 1%. A lot of the airline and travel stocks falling sharply today. Qantas shares in Sydney down by 5%, the biggest one day decline that we've seen in about 17 months. It was a similar story for South Korea, the market there, the Kospi off by more more than 3%. Also a big loser today, the Singapore market down by around about 2.4%. Remember that the mainland China market still closed for Lunar New Year, as is Hong Kong. But when it comes to the latest numbers that we are getting out of Chinese authorities, of course, now more than 4,000 cases confirmed of this virus. In fact, 4,500. And the death toll in China, more than 100 as well. 106 was the latest update that we got from authorities as we continue to see more places around the world uh, report cases of this virus as well. But a weaker session for Asian equities today. Uh, Korea and Singapore, really the big decliners. Karen? Back over to you. Matt, thank you very much for that. Dr. Mark Parrish has joined us, Regional Medical Director, Northern Europe International SOS. Uh, doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Markets, uh, investors, uh, many people located around the world trying to work on what exactly coronavirus is and what the danger could be. As you weigh up the events that have unfolded in Wuhan and beyond the spread of the virus, what are we dealing with here? What's your take on it? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? This is a, a, a coronavirus which we've probably all had a cough and a cold caused by mm. coronavirus. Um, it's one of the most common things to cause colds. This time it has mutated. The genetic structure has changed of that virus. It's moved probably from an animal in those, one of those large uh, those animal mar those markets in Wuhan to a human, where it has started to give us the symptoms of a, of a cough and a cold. The outbreak was picked up in China by the Chinese uh, at the end of December. They identified the virus in early January and they've done all the molecular sequencing. So we know it's a coronavirus called a coronavirus because it looks like a crown under a microscope, under an electron microscope. Corona is Latin for crown. Um, and now it's the case of having identified the virus, we know the molecular structure, so we can put together the diagnostic testing to check whether you have coronavirus when you have the symptoms or not. Now it's a case of containing that outbreak. We've had four and a half thousand cases reported so far with about 100 deaths. Mortality, two to three percent. 
Um, that compares to other coronavirus outbreaks which we've had. SARS back in 2002 was also caused by a coronavirus um, and that had about 10% um, death rate. And Middle East respiratory virus, which is another coronavirus, which is actually still endemic mm. in the Middle East, 35% um, death rate. Uh, and that's caused by, and that's still going on, uh, and that's caused by drinking uh, camel milk and camel urine and it mm. spreads to us that way. So the concern is, is this the next big flu pandemic that everybody's concerned about. You know, back in, How we were just saying, um, not at the moment. I mean, it, it appears to be very well contained. I mean, the Chinese have done some extraordinary things. I mean, identifying the virus, getting its molecular structure, and then instigating those quarantine measures in China, where they have shut down these huge cities mm -hmm. and stopped all movement. On the other side, it's come at a really bad time for the Chinese because it's Chinese New Year. You, know, you get three billion journeys, I think they say, are happening in mm. China with this New Year. It's likely to have moved around China. So we've seen those cases around different parts of China. Wuhan, such a large right. transport hub, it's come to other parts of the world. We'll see other cases popping up. It appears, though, you know, that the death rate remains at about 2%, 3%. It seems to be very well contained at the moment. Yes, and at least they are—they are putting, as you say, those play, those measures in place to uh, lock down approximately 56 million people. My question is: Look, we all diligently every single season go out and get our influenza shot, but you know, th th with varying degrees of efficacy, you know, those influenza shots never have a 100% success rate. You can still end up getting the flu. So my question here is: With the coronavirus, what are the hopes for some kind of vaccine? I'm imagining that every single drug company around the world is is, is cranking up the kilns and trying to uh, to work on a vaccine and number two how effective are the antivirals that are already out there in the market against what we're dealing with now mm. the about 25 percent of people who have get the virus um, become quite sick and require hospital admission and then a small percentage unfortunately don't don't do very well and die um, treatment is what we in medical terms call symptomatic and supportive mm -hmm. so we will look after you give you fluids but there's no cure um, there's no antiviral that's working for that. Um, I'm sure there is work being done on developing a vaccine for this. Developing vaccines are, is very hard. I mean, it took a long time to develop a vaccine for Ebola, which we've, which we've now got. You know, we have no effective vaccine for HIV yet. So I think that's in time. And the other thing is we, we will see, I'm sure, further mutations of this coronavirus in the future. But are the people who are succumbing, the people who are dying, do they already have underlying respiratory or health issues yeah. on the whole? Just yes. to put it into perspective here. Yes, putting it into perspective, 100 deaths or so so far all in, in elderly people, those who have other coexisting diseases, unfortunately, and they are the ones that are most likely to be affected by this because their respiratory systems mm. just find it tricky to deal with these things. Dr. Parrish, um, whether or not coronavirus turns out to be a global pandemic is a question, and I'll just leave that question hanging there as well. But whether we are likely to see a proliferation of these type of viruses because of two reasons is my question here. One, because of the density of populations now in areas which were previously agrarian and are now see huge conurbations uh, and huge density of populations, i.e. the spread is much quicker. And for the second reason is, is basically uh, the way we farm and the way we um, uh, I was going to say treat our livestock as well. Let's be honest about it as well. Very, very intense farming in huge parts of the world as well. So from a farming point of view and societal point of view, I can't see how in future pandemics things are going to be any better. In fact, they could be dramatically worse, couldn't they? Well, of course, the other thing that we have nowadays is such rapid and good transport links, which mm. is how this virus has been able to spread around the world and will continue to do that. Um, 
This one is spread by droplets, so when we cough and when we sneeze, we, we'll transmit it to other people. Um, that's happened with all of the other coronaviruses. This intense urbanization and you know, intense agriculture may have an effect. Certainly in China, the interesting thing was this virus probably came from one of those live uh, food markets, which I'm sure we've all seen. Viruses are there. The virus's sole mission in life is to live somewhere quietly where it can reproduce. It, this one found a way to slightly change its molecular structure so that it could move to us and hopefully live and reproduce and continue, and it, gave us bad, it gives us bad symptoms. There will be other ones of these in the future. Mm. The concern uh, the World Health Organization has that we all have is that you know, there will be another massive pandemic like that Spanish flu well, back in the 1900s. Which is what Mandy referred to yesterday, which yes. I, I thought was a huge leap, but I mean, you're making the point as well, so I, I take that on board. I mean, Spanish flu killed more people than the First World War, yes. uh, 50 million people yes. between 1917 and 1919 as well. Uh, and, and the thing I found staggering, and funny if I was reading about it quite recently, is no one ever found a cure for the Spanish Q, no. uh, um, Spanish fever, Spanish flu. It came, it killed 50 million people, and it went away again without a cure. But, but so your point, it just went away. Is it possible that when it gets warmer in China, say late March, early April, it might just flame out like SARS did? It may just flame out. You're right. SARS just disappeared, probably because there was no reservoir. Mm. There was nothing for the virus to keep living in and it just went away. MERS in the Middle East mm. now is still there because those camels, it's still living in camels and being transmitted to people. So it's a matter of time. We'll just need to see what happens. But, you know, Chinese doing a good job. It will be interesting to see how those cases change. Meanwhile, you know, businesses are working out what should they do when they, should they send people over there or not Do you think there are many more cases out there that are actually being reported? Yes. They just like haven't been degree. determined yet. So the, 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 I looked on the, the information coming from the Chinese yesterday was that they had 6,000 suspected cases, which I think yesterday they had about 3,000 confirmed. So this morning we've got about uh, four and a half thousand confirmed. I think we'll have some more confirmed. And just to confirm, you, your um, impression is, your understanding is, you, you think the Chinese are doing a very good job yeah. of taking as much action as they can? Very much so. Okay. I, I don't think it's particularly easy to shut down those cities. No, 11 million people in, uh, in that one place alone, uh, Wuhan. Okay, thank you very much indeed for that, sir. Uh, Dr. Mark Parrish, who is Regional Medical Director, Northern Europe International SOS. Coming up on this show, Renault's board reportedly prepares to approve its new CEO. We'll have some details after this break. Also, if you can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. You can head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. Of course they can't get enough of us. Let's take a look at the opening calls. This is after Europe had very heavy trade to the downside yesterday. The Euro stocks index was down by 2.3% with 50% heavier than normal volume. Uh, the opening calls, however, show a modicum of stabilization after 180 billion euros of market cap was wiped off yesterday. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse.
Renault board members will reportedly meet today to rubber stamp Luca De Meo's appointment as CEO. According to La Figaro, De Meo will not begin his role until July. Renault chairman Jean-Dominique Senat told CNBC in Davos that the new CEO would be announced in, quote, a short period of time, but declined to give a day. De Meo resigned as president of SEAT earlier this month. But it all comes amid questions about the future of Renault's alliance with Nissan, amid strained relations between the two companies following the arrest of former chairman Carlos Ghosn. Speaking to CNBC at the World Economic Forum, Senna sounded a positive note on the partnership. Questions about the alliance, uh, you know, um, what are the new challenges, how are we going to get out of that situation, were in every mind. And I can understand that. Yeah. But the good news, and that's what I want to insist on, is that we are now in a new stage of the alliance, probably back to the f spirit of the alliance when it was created 20 years ago, which was a success. Um, and I think we're now uh, shaping up the whole thing in a way that we can only have positive news in the coming future. Well, if you've been watching CNBC diligently, you would know that luxury good companies have been among the hardest hit sectors by the coronavirus, according to Bain and company consultants. The sector grew 5% in 2018, thanks to largely Chinese customers who purchased more than a third of all luxury goods. LVMH is posting its 2019 full year results after the bell today, and the results will be very closely watched as it serves as a bellwether for the luxury goods industry. Let's bring in Charlotte with more. Charlotte, I was reading a report from Bernstein saying that Chinese nationals back in 2003, in other words, the time that we're often comparing the current coronavirus to because of SARS, they accounted for 2% of the global luxury market. Now it's 35%. And this is why we really want to hear from the likes of LVMH what they're saying about coronavirus. Do you, think, do you think they'll deliver? Yes, well, that's why we've seen those, all those luxury stocks down so heavily in the past week or so, uh, because the exposure that they have to China. You know, mm. it was all good news on China. The appetite of the Chinese consumers seemed to not slow down. Uh, but now, of course, you know, the clouds were just lifting for this sector because you had at the back of the EU, uh, US-China trade tensions that would have worried about an impact on the sector. Then you had the Digitax impact, potential tariffs on, on some leather goods, French leather goods. All this was going away. So there was a hope, you know, for 2020, all these troubles were going away. Mm. And now we have this potential risk of an epidemic and the impact on the Chinese consumer, less travel and less uh, consumption in China. You know, you had the Hong Kong uh, protest there. There was also a bit of, in of an impact that we saw in the past couple of quarters that was mainly offset by mainland China. And we saw that from Richmond last week as well. Now, not so much as a concern actually in China because of the potential epidemic, there could be an impact there as well. So where do we look for it in the numbers? Because of very different components, of course, across LVMH, you've got uh, the, the wines and spirits division versus, say, the luxury goods, which has a lot of the handbags in perfumes, watches and jewellery. Is it just concentrated mostly around that wines and spirits business because of less hospitality? There's, uh, there's also the, the leather goods, you know, that is the money-making machine of LVMH. That's almost 40% of the revenues there. And that's what Chinese consumers are, have massive appetite for, whether it's when they travel, when they're on holiday in mainland China, or when they come to Europe, when they come to Paris, you just have to go to those luxury, st luxury stores to see that, you know, there's still a great appetite there. There's a lot of Chinese consumers that still want it. You know, we still expect the results to be really good. It's been a bit in the past three quarters, so it's not a question about this quarter. The, the, the results are expected to be really good. But of course, we're waiting for a comment from management. Uh, there's a call at 6 p.m. Uh, this evening, and we want to see comments of potential impact for the first quarter. Uh, you know, we We've seen also this, this stock up 
almost for 50% last year. So there's a bit of profit taking here as well, probably so, on the back of this price. How much does, <clears throat> I, I must be honest, I have that long time ago bought an LVMH handbag for a, a partner, long ago, um, but they've gone up in price. Uh, and I don't know how much an LVMH handbag can be now. $5,000, $4,000, pretty much. Uh, close to about this thousand. So between two and $4,000. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, and then you can get to a Birkin bag, which is five figures, yeah? So we're talking about a very, very expensive purchase as well. Now, my, my question is, people aren't substituting this for buying food or buying supplies at home. They, they, these are rich enough people anyway to be able to buy these. So are we talking about a compression or, or a squeezing of demand into a period after this crisis reaches its apex as well? Because what we've seen in previous weather-related events as well mm. in the US and mm. elsewhere is where people withhold their um, purchases and then in the second quarter or the quarter following, we see a boom. Exactly my point. So I'm wondering whether this is a story of actually for those investors who are looking at these companies thinking, well, these are withheld purchases, but they are going to happen anyway at some stage. Well, that's a question. And that's why they're waiting to see whether the influx point is in this crisis and see where. So there's a bit of visibility for this consumer to see whether the positive effect will come back in Q2 or Q3 and have a bit of visibility there. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.